We invite our children to be dismissed now for their time and form of worship. And as they are dismissed, let us bow and pray together. Lord, what can we give you but our hearts? And so this day, as your church gathers in many and varied ways around this city and around the world, on the eve of Christmas Eve, may the church proclaim the hope and the peace and the joy and the love in such a way that human lives are transformed and we wait not upon government decisions or upon the answers from the academy, but rather from that one true word that rings through the ages in all languages and in all ways. Through the living word, Christ, we pray. Amen. This week I had an opportunity to uh, be interviewed for um, a cable television show that I think is designed for insomniacs. It's one of those late at night uh, shows, I suspect, on a kind of obscure uh, television channel. And so the interview was um, about leadership and about uh, who I am. And so there were questions like, uh, if you were an app on an iPhone, what app would you be? Um, If you were a vegetable, what kind would you be? And then this question came up. Define leadership in one word. I'm glad that they gave me um, the questions in advance so that I could think a little bit about my response. And I answered, vision. Leadership is vision. It is the capacity to see the opportunities and the obstacles before you as an individual or as a people and to see a way forward, to feel drawn forward, to help others see that vision and to move together as a body. What do you think? Is that worth staying up for late at night to hear? It has prompted me, though, to think about vision. This is a time of year when Vision is easily lost. All of the other superficialities of the season impinge on our sight and are almost like blinders that keep us from seeing what's truly important. Whether we're talking about the holiday activities or even if we begin to talk about the biblical story of Matthew and Luke and their telling of the birth narratives of Jesus, we can get lost in the history and in the miracle and in the angels and in the wise men. And how exactly did all this happen? And miss what's central. What I love about this reading on the fourth Sunday of Advent is a reminder for us that there were two women, interesting women, among us Baptists who fought for years over whether women could have vision and lead, here are two women with the vision and the capacity. Without any training, without any divine assistance, the vision to see what so many missed. They were able to see 
that they could be a player in the bigger story, bigger than themselves. They were the ones who had the vision that the world isn't doomed, that we're not set to simply repeat the cycles of oppression and violence and despair and austerity and scarcity, but that God has a different agenda. And then they were able to see that the holy and the sacred is not just confined to heaven out there somewhere, but rather that the sacred comes to us as one of us. That's vision. Mary and Elizabeth were two women of their time and culture who were surely told in so many ways, directly and indirectly, that they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough. They were women. Men barely spoke to women unless absolutely necessary. And these two particular women, because of their uh, pregnancies, were uh, some uh, concern to the community. One because of her youth, the other because of her age, but both of them feeling a little embarrassed and not quite sure what to make of their experience. And yet, when the angel of the Lord spoke to them, they had the vision and the capacity to hear it and say, yes, I am good enough. I am worthy enough to not only hear this, but to tell this forth. We think about the world we live in. We think about how to make this world better. But what of the capacity, the vision, to be able to see ourselves as good enough, to be instruments of God's love? How many of us live with that message that you receive somewhere, somehow, maybe from a parent, maybe from a sibling, maybe just from your surroundings, perhaps from the church you were raised in, that says to you, you're not good enough? Linda could have taken that tact. She was raised in an abusive home. Her mother was an alcoholic. Her dad was in and out of her life. Her siblings followed that path. Her sisters kind of went off in one direction. Her brother was in prison. We met to plan her other brother's funeral. Because of his life pattern, he had been beaten up. He had his skull kicked in, and as a result, he was having repeated seizures, and he tried to medicate the seizures with beer. And they found him, and he was dead. She told me their family story, and I said, Well, Linda, why didn't you turn out that way? What happened to you? How did you get away? And here's what she said. God found me. God found me and spoke to me. And I felt worthy to do something different. She's now the hub of her family. She's now an important leader in her family. And she has a job. She's a manager in a restaurant. She said to me, these young kids who work for me, they talk bad about each other. And I say to them, You don't need to do that. Do you know you can break your ankle stepping on people? She's trying to 
move it forward, to pay it forward. And you just wonder, in this world we live in, what if people could come aware, have the vision to see themselves, maybe you today, to see yourself as someone who could be an instrument of God's love? What would that change in you? What might that have changed in Adam Lanza up in Newtown, Connecticut? What might it change in the way politicians relate to each other? How might the world be different? I think it was because Elizabeth and Mary were able to see themselves as players in God's story that they could envision and see the world as God intends They weren't stuck in the old patterns. The biblical word for this kind of vision is hope. Hope. Hope isn't just wishful thinking. I hope I get a pony for Christmas. Hope is seeing what is not yet, but seeing that it's real. And stepping into it in the now, even though it hasn't come about yet, we see it and we believe it and we step into it. Hope looks at Newtown, Connecticut and sees the pain, of course, but we also see God picking up the pieces and restoring and finding a way where there is no way. Hope acknowledges the darkness in Morocco and in Shelby Park at times, but it also sees God's already at work in these places. There is hope. Hope sees our economy of scarcity, but God, but God also gives us the capacity to see the sacred abundance of this world. If we just unclench our fists. Elizabeth comes to Mary. She expresses her joy in a merry merry response with what we call the Magnificat. It is a radical statement. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. He has given us the strength of his arm. God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart, brings the powerful down from their thrones, and lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry with good things, and sends the rich away empty. Is this class warfare? No, this is biblical hope. It looks into the future and sees what God intends for the world, that the world might be made right through the power of sacred love. Love, not violence, love. Mary's vision detects that violence, military violence, personal violence, economic violence, emotional violence, will never win the gift This extraordinary gifts. The gift can never be won. The gift must be given. And it's given to those who will give themselves to the work and the vision of love. And then this best gift of all. Mary and Elizabeth see the holy coming forth from their own humanity, from their very bodies. Before the shepherds and the wise men knew it, Mary and Elizabeth knew it. They were the first preachers of this Christian gospel, of this miracle of a gift that God will come among humanity.
that the holy is in our midst. We get so mixed up and messed up and confused and conflicted about this miracle of incarnation. And scholars and academics have spent lifetimes dissecting the language and debating the tone and the nuances of incarnation. And meanwhile, it all gets lost that God is here among us. That the work of love is not some theological abstraction we can write about in books, but it's lived among human beings in faith in our stories and in our foibles and in our frailties, the Holy One comes. Elizabeth says, how can this happen to me that the mother of the Lord should come to someone like me? And Mary responds to the call by saying, here I am. God is looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Which raises the question then, could the extraordinary gift be among us today? Today, now. You may have just come to church, you know, Sunday before Christmas. But what if the extraordinary gift is here? I've told this story before about the monastery, once great and grand, that had shrunk down to simply five old monks living together, their place decaying, their future much in question. They gathered and wondered, what's to become of us after we die, what's to become of the monastery? In the woods near the monastery was a little hut that the rabbi from the nearby synagogue from the town would come to on occasion for retreat, to pray and meditate on the scriptures. And the monks, because they were so tuned into things, they could tell when the rabbi was in his hut. They would say to each other, the rabbi's in the woods. One day as they were pondering their future together, they sensed that the rabbi was in the woods. And so they said to the abbot, could you go to your old friend? And why don't you ask him if he has any advice that he might give us how we might save our monastery. And so the abbot, the leader, went out to the hut and greeted his old friend. They were glad to see each other and they talked and commiserated. The rabbi said, well, we have the same thing in the synagogue in the city. People don't come to Shabbat like they used to. So they prayed and they read the Torah. And they said to one another, it's so really good to see you. But said the abbot, have you no advice for us and our monastery? The rabbi said, I have no word for you. Only one thing, that The Messiah is one of you. The abbot went back to the monastery. The other four were waiting anxiously to hear what the the rabbi had said. And he said, well, he had no advice for us. He said they have the same problem in the synagogue. 
He did say, though, as just as we were parting, he had this rather cryptic statement. He said the Messiah is one of us. For the next several weeks, they pondered this. The Messiah is one of us? I mean, does he mean one of us? Well, if he does, surely he means the abbot. The abbot's been our leader for all these years, and he's done it so wonderfully. Or perhaps he means Brother Thomas, for Thomas is so very holy. I know he doesn't mean Eldred, though. Eldred is crotchety and gaseous, and he's a thorn in everyone's side. And, and yet he's often right. When we need a direction, he's the one who detects the way to go. Well, I know he wouldn't mean Philip. Philip is so passive, he's kind of a nobody, but yet it's kind of miraculous how when you need someone to be there for you, there he is. Well, I know he wouldn't mean me. It couldn't be me. I I couldn't be the Messiah. Well, as they considered these questions among themselves in silence, they began to treat each other with a different kind of respect on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And in fact, they began to treat themselves a little better because of the possibility that they might be the Messiah. The monastery was located near these woods and folks from the town would go to visit in the woods, sort of like a park and Occasionally, they would wander over to the monastery. Falling in as it was, they would visit the chapel and wonder about these people who were there. And as the monks began to treat each other differently, the people from the community began to sense this aura of respect and holiness around these five monks that seemed to radiate from them and just sort of permeate the woods and it attracted more people and they began to invite their friends to come for picnics and to play and to pray in the chapel and one day one of the younger men approached one of the old monks and said how does one become a monk anyway and eventually he asked to join first one and then another and then another In a few years, the monastery had become again a thriving, faithful, healthy community. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, it became a community of hope and healing. Well, I've told that story before. I suppose one way to interpret it is to say... There really isn't a Messiah. But if we'll all pretend and be nicer to each other, the world will be a better place. Let me offer another interpretation. That Christ is born to Mary. Christ is laid in a manger long ago. And Christ is present here and now among us so that we worship him not as an abstraction, not as an idea, not as a shrine, but as a presence waiting for us 
One poet said, God is breathing gently. God never hurries. God is never anxious or pressing. God just waits, breathing gently upon us with great tenderness until we look to God and knowingly, like Mary, nod our yes. That we see it and we believe it. This hope that calls to us, this peace that engulfs us, this love that, that changes us and everything around us until that day when, like Elizabeth, we feel it moves something in us and it produces joy, joy. Let's pray together. <clears throat> May we this day feel something move inside of us. More than just a warm, churchy feeling. May it be Christ in us, through us, around us. May this mystery walk with us from this place. So that through us, your transforming love might permeate this city and beyond. Through the power And in the name of Jesus Christ, come among us. Amen.